Hi everyone, and welcome to the Yonsei Podcast. My name is Hiro from Nikkei Rising, and today we'll be honoring the veterans in our community with this episode for Memorial Day. Hi everyone, this is Matt, and I'll be joining Hiro to host this holiday episode. For today's episode, we'll be doing things a little bit differently. Instead of asking our guests questions, we'll be letting them tell their own stories about their families' experiences as part of the 442nd, 100th Infantry Battalion, and MIS during World War II. In between our guest vignettes, Hido and I will be giving you a historical breakdown of Japanese American service during the war. Although Matt and I would love to deep dive into this topic with how much we love our Nisei vets, there's only so much we can talk about in one episode. So, if you'd like to learn more about the 442nd, the 100th Infantry Battalion, and the Military Intelligence Service, you can visit institutions such as the Gopher Broke National Education Center, the Military Intelligence Service Historic Learning Center, the Nisei Veterans Committee, the 442nd Clubhouse, along with so many other institutions that focus on preserving the legacy of our Nisei veterans. Our guests who will be sharing their family and personal stories today include Reed Mizue. Hey, hi guys. My name is Reed Mizue.、Um, I'm born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii. My grandfather on my mother's side is、um, Tadao Ibaraki, and、uh, he was with the 100th Infantry Battalion, Company A. Megan Nagasaki. Well, hi to you both.、Uh, my name is Megan Nagasaki. I am a fifth generation Japanese American.、Um, grew up in the South Bay of the Los Angeles area, South Bay, not to be confused with the、uh, San Francisco Bay area. Yeah, so my grandpa,、uh, Bruce Yutaka Nagasaki, was in 442. He was in Company F. Fellow Nikkei Rising member Sachi Koida. Hi, everyone. My name is Sachi Koida, and I am the granddaughter of Samuel Sabado Koida. My grandfather was in the military intelligence service,、um, and he actually served as a translator.、Um, this is a really special thing to me to get to talk about him、uh, so soon after his death and to share some of his stories. And Emiko Kranz. With that said, let's go ahead and get started. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. President Roosevelt called Pearl Harbor a date which shall live in infamy. The United States had been attacked for the first time since the War of 1812, and the country was now engulfed in another war that they had been trying to avoid. But the infamy that Roosevelt spoke of was something else entirely different for the 120,000 Japanese Americans living on the West Coast. Over the course of the war, these 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry were forcibly removed from their homes and sent to incarceration camps spread across the country without due process and trial. For the Nisei, the second generation Japanese Americans born in the United States and making up two thirds of those incarcerated, the incarceration put them in a particular paradoxical situation. Despite the United States government marking those draft eligible Japanese Americans as Category 4C, enemy alien, in 1941, the Department of War changed the policies in 1943 to allow the Nisei to volunteer for combat duty with the United States Army in the upcoming European theater. 
Over the course of less than two years from late 1943 through mid-1945, 16,000 Nisei men would serve in the U.S. Army despite having been removed from their homes, having their rights stripped away from them, and their loyalty questioned. Those men fought with distinction and valor, becoming the most highly decorated military unit of its size in all of the United States Army history. Here's Reed and Sachi talking about their grandfather's experiences during Pearl Harbor. Yeah, he was actually in the last draft. So he was drafted in November 1941. And the next month, you know, Pearl Harbor occurred, you know, December 7, 1941. And so that was astounding to myself uh, that, you know, the, he, he was in the last draft class, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the next month he was, he was being trucked to Schofield Barracks. You know, he had seen the fire, the fire still burning, you know, the next day they were called to duty and they had to go ahead and um, head out to Schofield Barracks to um, report in. And he said he could see the burning ships. And I asked him also, you know, was he, was he scared or was he uh, angry at all? And, you know, he kind of nonchalantly said, no, well, yeah, you know, everyone's scared because it's like seemingly the beginning of a war. But he said, everyone's going to be scared, but he had no anger, he said. He said that, um, which is a common theme when he spoke to me about everything war-related. It was just, you know, I had a duty to do. They told me to go report in. That's So I just did that, you know, mm-hmm. kind of very nonchalant. Like, I'm just following the orders. I'm doing what I, what I was told to do. So my grandfather witnessed Pearl Harbor mm. at 18 years old. His family was in Honolulu and he was up on the hill and he saw the planes. I think what I think what my uncle thinks is he saw a plane that had lost their direction and it kind of flew around. Um, but he saw the smoke and stuff from Pearl Harbor. And he was also at 9-11 somewhere in Manhattan, like same situation. It happened. He saw the smoke. He was one of the people who had to walk off the island because everything got shut down and there was like no way for anyone to come pick him up. And as far as we know, and what my uncle believes is that he's the only person to have witnessed both events, like the two events that were attacks on American soil. The story of the Nisei vets, though, starts before Pearl Harbor. A number of Nisei soldiers were already stationed in Hawaii as part of the U.S. Army, either having volunteered or been drafted in the years before the war. Other members were part of the Hawaiian Territorial Guard, and the Army's Reserve Officer Training Corps, or ROTC as we know it, at the University of Hawaii. Following the attack, the Nisei soldiers were not seen as soldiers, but as enemies. Only a small number of Nisei were allowed to remain in the Hawaiian Territorial Guard, 1,300 in total, but were relegated to menial postings. The remaining Nisei men were relieved of duty and formally discharged from the military. While these men couldn't return to active duty as they had wished, they instead came together to create a new unit called the Victory Varsity Volunteers also called the Triple V. It became a volunteer company with the Army Corps of Engineers, working on barracks, defense positions, and civilian infrastructure in Hawaii in support of the war effort. Over 2,000 men joined the unit and caught the attention of the U.S. Army in Hawaii. Across the ocean, back on the mainland, another unit was already beginning to take shape. In preparation for the coming war, the United States military had prepared for the possibility of a campaign in the Pacific, and brought in a number of Japanese-American servicemen to form the Military Intelligence Service. These men found their temporary home in Building 640 in the Presidio of San Francisco, 
where they would improve their Japanese language skills and learn Japanese military jargon that would aid the Allies in the coming war. Unfortunately, following the attack on Pearl Harbor and the enactment of Executive Order 9066, Building 640 would be closed and the military intelligence service would be moved from their training in the Presidio to Camp Savage and Fort Snelling across the country. Since their formation, the Triple V had petitioned to be allowed to transition into a combat unit to be deployed into Europe. While the petition was sent to the Department of War, it was quickly denied, but instead, out of fear, with so many Nisei soldiers being in one place, the army did decide that they would remove those already enlisted Nisei soldiers. In 1942, as the U.S. Navy was engaged in one of the first major battles of the war, and would later turn out to be a turning point in the Pacific, 1,400 men of the Triple V were told to report for transport to the mainland. Under the cover of darkness, these 1,400 men traveled from Hawaii to Oakland, California. During the trip, they were given the name the Hawaiian Provisional Infantry Battalion, but upon disembarking in Oakland, given their official unit designation, the 100th Infantry Battalion. This was only the beginning though. From Oakland, the men boarded a train bound for Camp McCoy in Wisconsin, where their official training would begin. Partway through their time at Camp McCoy, the unit would be transferred to Camp Shelby in Mississippi and later Camp Claiborne in Louisiana for final training and war games exercises. To talk about their grandfather's training stories, here's Raiden Sachi. Yeah, he, he he mentioned that he had, he went to, um, I think their first training was in Wisconsin, Camp McCoy, I believe. Um, so they were up there, I think, June of 42, starting the training. And yeah, and he, he does remember getting um, shipped to California and then they by train had to head to Wisconsin mm-hmm. uh, with the with the train shades down. I, I've heard other people say that, that that was also a common thing that they've heard is that they had to do that um, as to not um, excite the general public based mm-hmm. on what happened at Pearl Harbor. Um, but again, he had no emotion related to those thoughts at all he just was like oh no we, we bring we're being told where to go and what to do mm-hmm. and that was the bottom line you know the story that sticks with me is is how much how much free time they may have had um i'm not sure but they they he remembers a lot of um gambling <laughs> so they did a lot of dice and card play and um that was seemed to be a daily activity for a lot of the Hawaii boys. And I did ask him about the situation between the interactions between mainland born Japanese American um, Nisei and, and, and the Hawaii born. But he said that he didn't have any problems with the mainland, the mainland soldiers at all. And I asked him about the whole Katonk idea of where that <laughs> term came from and and he laughed, you know, he said, oh, yeah, well, he heard, he, he had heard that there was a little fight in the shower and one of the mainland boys slipped and fell and hit his head on the floor and, and that, and made that sound. <laughs> and then, then they started calling all of them katonks. <laughs> so, I mean, um, but beyond that, he said, no, it was, it was um, there. He thought highly of them. And he thought um, well of them. 
My grandfather, he was a student at the University of Hawaii at the time and actually didn't join or didn't enlist until August of 1945, uh, just two months before the end of the war. So yeah, a lot of it, he had a lot of uh, interesting training stories that he, I guess that he shared with my uncle and really his biggest role was post-war as a translator and researcher of war crime trials. So he was taken to Fort Benning, Georgia for some of his training. And that was during uh, still the Jim Crow area back in the time when there were no Asians in that area. So basically the rule of the law was that if you're Asian, you're white, but the treatment that you received was black. So um, some of the stories that he told me early on were about being so confused about what bathroom he was supposed to use and what hotel rooms and seeing his friends get turned away from drinking fountains when they were just didn't know how to deal with the culture there and the culture didn't know how to deal with them. So it's just so terrible that while they were facing very distinctly anti-Japanese sentiments, they were also like dealing with the racism of the South and like how all of that was still raging so hard in the U.S. As the 100th was crossing the ocean on its way to Oakland, California in June of 1942, the War Relocation Authority, or WRA, had already been forcibly removing and incarcerating the 120,000 Japanese Americans on the West Coast. During this time, the Japanese American Citizens League, or JCL, had been designated by the U.S. Army to act as a liaison between the Army and the community incarcerated in the camps. The JACL's National Secretary, Mike Masaoka, became the main figure to serve as intermediary between the Army and the community. While petitioning for basic necessities for the incarcerees, he also petitioned the Army to allow Nisei men to serve in the U.S. Armed Forces. His belief was that military service would be the way for Japanese Americans to prove their loyalty, and like the Triple V, called for the formation of an all-Japanese-American fighting unit to join the war effort. In part because of the pleas from Nisei Min to be allowed to serve, both by Mike Masaoka and the other Nisei, and seeing the exploits of the Triple V in Hawaii and how the 100th had been doing in training, the Army finally agreed to form an official unit of all Japanese-Americans. The unit was officially designated in January of 1943 as the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. In February, a year after Executive Order 9066, the Army began the process of finding men to form the unit. Before these men could serve in the Army, there were many still in Army High Command that feared the possibility of saboteurs and Japanese sympathizers amongst the Nisei camp. So to discover the so-called loyalty of those incarcerated, the WRA, the Department of War, with the assistance of the Office of Naval Intelligence, created the Statement of United States Citizens of Japanese Ancestry. In the camps, and by many today, this form became known as the infamous loyalty questionnaire due to its divisive nature and as it's used by the WRA to move so-called disloyal Japanese and Japanese Americans to a prison camp at Tui Lake in Northern California. The most infamous of these questions were the last two, questions number 27 and 28, which read, Are you willing to serve in the armed forces of the United States on combat duty wherever ordered? And will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States of America and faithfully defend the United States from any and all attack by foreign or domestic forces and forswear any allegiance or obedience to the Japanese emperor 
or any other foreign government, power, or organization. Before the questionnaire was sent out, the army had already set guidelines for what it believed would be a good number of volunteers for service. The initial request would be to take 1,000 volunteers from the Hawaiian Nisei and 3,000 from those within the camps on the mainland. However, due to the nature of the loyalty questionnaire, the army had a far different result. While 20,000 Nisei out of the 120,000 people in the camps were eligible for combat duty, only 6%, or 1,181 men, stepped up to volunteer. Of this group, only 800 were eligible for combat duty under the Army's fitness guidelines. In Hawaii, however, an overwhelming 10,000 volunteers stepped up for combat, many of them part of the Triple V. Of these men from Hawaii, 2,868 were inducted. By April 1943, the men enlisted within the 442nd were shipped out to meet the 100th Battalion at a new training grounds in Camp Shelby, Mississippi. Between the original 1,400 men from the 100th Battalion and the 3,600 from the 442nd, the unit as a whole had a fighting strength of roughly 5,000 men. Not including the 100th's numbers, the 442nd would be comprised of one-third mainland Nisei and two-thirds Hawaiian Nisei. Here's Megan to talk about why she thinks her grandfather enlisted. A lot of this information and by a lot of it, I mean all of it, was never directly told by him himself. Mm. Uh, a lot of it was actually told through either documents or even my grandma. Um, and even my grandma, so she's actually my step-grandma. They got married, um, I think they were probably in their 60s. So they were in their adult life, and this is when my birth grandma passed away, like after she had passed mm. away and everything like that. Like I didn't even get to meet her. My mom, I think, met her once. So it was pretty early on, but that's all to say that, yeah, this was never really something that was brought up in conversation or anything like that. So all this information was like in veteran affairs documents, even after he passed, I think in 2012, 2011. Um, and we had this like full briefcase of just like paperwork, pictures. And I was like, what the heck? Like, where did all this come from? My whole family on that side was all grew up in East Los Angeles and they ended up going to Poston. So that's the camp that they were in. And then he enlisted. Um, he was not drafted. He volunteered to go. Because we never got to hear about it from him himself. Mm -hmm. That feels like a pretty personal decision, right? Yeah. I feel like for some people, that's a very, you know, like adamant, like I'm choosing this for X, Y, and Z reasons. But I think knowing enough about my grandpa, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, obviously, but I think his temperament and him being very similar to my dad, it, I'm assuming it's like a sense of duty, right? A sense of obligation, a sense mm -hmm. of responsibility, mm -hmm. or maybe at the time it felt like the right thing to do. Like he was mm -hmm. in, I believe it was like early 20s, late teens, something like that. So, you know, able-bodied, fit. He was super tall, especially for a JA. I think he was like 6'2", 6'3". Jeez. Um, played <laughs> basketball, was an athlete, all these things. So I think a lot of those things kind of aligned in understanding his temperament of just, this just makes sense maybe. Um, that's probably what I would assume, or wouldn't be surprised if that was the answer. When the 100th returned to Camp Shelby from Camp Claiborne in the summer of 1943, they met for the first time with their fellow soldiers in the 442nd. By the end of the summer, the North African campaign had ended with an Allied victory and set the stage for the beginning of an Allied invasion in Europe, starting with Italy. The 100th Battalion, having spent more time in training, was shipped out in August of 1943 for Africa to serve as guards for German POW camps and workers at the Allied staging grounds. Several of the men stayed behind to help train the newly arrived men of the 442nd. 
To talk about this first deployment to Africa, here's Reed talking about his grandfather's experience when he arrived. I believe his, you know, his discharge papers say that he he did get he did enter the war through North Africa, and so started there with that first group of hundred, and then they got shipped off to I believe they went up through Italy. And in his stories of、um, Europe, he he would just always mention the climate, how either ridiculously hot it was, or how ridiculous ridiculously cold it was.、Mm. And、um, that's because I guess in Hawaii here we we don't really have seasons. It's just you know it's just、um, balmy、mm. every single day, you know, summer or or winter. Colonel Turner, commander for the Hundredth Battalion, petitioned the army to join the upcoming invasion in September. The army finally agreed and allowed the Hundredth Battalion to join the Thirty Fourth Infantry Division, and the group landed in Salerno, Italy. The battalion moved with the 34th Infantry through Italy towards Rome and joined the bloody Battle of Monte Cassino from January through March 1944. Of the 1,300 men enlisted when they shipped out after the battle, roughly 500 men remained combat capable. The rest were either killed, wounded, or missing in action. Their actions earned them the nickname "the Purple Heart Battalion" by their peers in the 34th. Still recovering from their bloody battle at Monte Cassino. Their rest was short-lived, as the remaining men, supplemented by a few replacements that shipped over early from training, were pushed back into the fight for the Anzio Beach just outside of Rome. For several months, they sat at a stalemate before making a final push in mid-May of 1943. Thanks to some reconnaissance and the capture of several German soldiers, the Hundredth were able to take out the final German stronghold south of the city and allow the Allies to take the city without further fighting. The dwindling troops, though, would soon be able to catch some reprieve. As the brothers in arms from the 442nd were finally about to arrive from training, to talk a little bit about these first battles of the 100th Battalion, here's Reed talking about his grandfather's experience in Italy. The only theaters of war that he mentioned、um, to me was being in、um, Anzio, Italy. He was in that battle, and then he mentioned passing through Rome, and he 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 says he got injured in、um, in Salerno. So I think his stint was pretty short,、um, but the stories that he was telling me were seeming like long stretches of time,、mm-hmm. he, and, and that's when he mentions the climate all the time. He mentions he mentions going on a lot of long, long walks. So I guess the companies would be patrolling, and they just have to go on these tours where they'd be walking for day and night, walking, you know. So he would mention a lot of stories about what what goes on during those walks, you know. So he he did say he had they had a lot of fun. <laughs> he said they'd stop in these towns, these Italian towns, and they'd go ahead and help themselves to the、um, the grapes in the fields, <laughs> not knowing they're wine grapes and not、mm. edible, you know, eating type of grapes. He's, he mentioned that they'd empty their canteens and fill them up with wine, and so he said half the company is、um, drunk while on the tours. <laughs> <laughs> But then, you know, when he told me those stories, he he kind of took a right turn and told me that you know that that's the thing. He said he said all the good soldiers died there. With their training complete, the 442nd was shipped out in May 1944 to join the 100th Battalion north of Rome. The 100th was allowed to keep their battalion name 
when they formally attached to the 442nd, and the unit in its entirety, including its 522nd Field Artillery Battalion, Medical Detachment, Cannon Company, Anti-Tank Company, and 232nd Engineering Corps, landed in Italy in June of 1944, a week after the invasion of Normandy. Eager to prove themselves alongside the 100th Battalion, the 442nd got its chance in late June 1944 at the town of Belvedere as a part of the U.S. 5th Army. While their initial tastes of combat were nothing like they could have prepared for, the Nisei men were more than ready to join the fight and able to take over Belvedere with few casualties while inflicting massive damage. With the Allied push now in full swing, the 442nd found themselves being sent in different directions. The men of the anti-tank battalion were sent on a secret training mission to join the push in northern France, while the remainder of the regiment would be sent to the eastern part of France to join the push into the Rhineland, a strip of land separating Germany and France. While the anti-tank battalions were busy fighting heavy German armored divisions in the southern regions, the 442nd was having no easier time in the increasingly cold region of the Vosges Mountains in the Rhineland, where they participated in one of the costliest and most famous actions of their time during the war. In one final attempt to thwart the Allied advance, German forces launched a counteroffensive in October of 1944 against forces in the Vosges region. Among the men who were holding the line was the 141st Regiment, a reserve battalion part of the 36th Texas Division under the command of General Dahlquist, the same commander of the 442nd. The 141st was tasked with pushing into enemy territory ahead of the main division not far into their operation, the 141st was cut off and surrounded on all sides by German forces. 300 men surrounded by nearly 6,000 newly replenished German troops. The men took position along a ridgeline and held their own for two days while other Texas regiments attempted to reach them. Unfortunately, to no avail. After two days, Dalquest ordered the wary men of the 442nd to gear up for combat. Over the course of five days, the 442nd fought against the massive German lines with little success. On the fifth night, the 442nd, desperate and tired of fighting, led a daring bonsai charge on the enemy lines. Within the hour, they pushed through the enemy lines to reach the now dwindling 211 Texan soldiers sitting on the ridge. With their objective complete, the men continued on past that line and began pushing the Germans back before being ordered to retreat. The single week of fighting alone resulted in 800 casualties, nearly 80% of the men sent to rescue the Texans, and well above the number of men they had rescued. Here's Reed to talk about how his grandfather felt about combat during World War II. He remembers being in a foxhole and trying to um, move, but he recalls, he, he told me they were they couldn't move. They were just pinned down by artillery. And then he went off on a tangent um, telling me that, you know, that's the thing. He said so many guys died due to artillery, the shelling of of the tr their troops. He said it was difficult during battle to know who you were shooting at because the artillery was just coming in from above you, you know. And, and so I think he thought of war as you can actually see the person you're shooting across the way and you're shooting them and they're shooting you. But he said, you know, honestly, his experience was they'd be ambushed a lot mm -hmm. um, or they'll just begin getting shelled from artillery. Mm -hmm. 
and they, they wouldn't be able to see them, but you, you know that they're out there and they see you. And so they'd be in foxholes, they'd be, they'd be um, walking in a, on tour and, and they'd be ambushed and have to take cover. And he said, you know, that's, he said primarily his experience was that's how a lot of his friends died was being ambushed and um, shrapnel and artillery hitting them and decimating their numbers. The last engagements of the war for the 442nd saw them return to where it all began in Italy. The last stronghold in the region, known as the Gothic Line, had been the site of major resistance by German forces. In the months since the 442nd had left the region, over a year and a half earlier, the Allies had not managed to move the German forces from these mountains at all. The 442nd went to the battle one last time to take the mountains and do what no other unit had done before. In the course of just a single night, the regiment broke the German lines and pushed the Germans back across the mountains. They gave chase to the fleeing German troops until May 2nd, 1945, when the German army in the region surrendered. Six days later, May 8th, 1945, the Allies declared victory over the Axis powers throughout all of Europe. Now, you may have noticed that it's been a while since we last talked about the military intelligence service in this episode, but that's because to this day, a majority of the records regarding the MIS in combat are still classified. Many MIS veterans still swear by secrecy and will not talk about their war stories. However, one aspect of the MIS that is well known is their aid in the occupation of Japan. Almost four months after VE Day, or the victory in Europe, the Allies would declare victory in Japan on August 15th of 1945. Soon after, General MacArthur, high command of all U.S. armed forces in the Pacific, ensured that the U.S. occupation of Japan would flow smoothly with the help of the MIS. Through the interpretation and translation skills of the MIS, civil and legal affairs became much easier as Nisei insisted in war crimes trials, repatriation, land reform, and much more. In a remark regarding the MIS, MacArthur's own intelligence chief stated that the Nisei saved countless lives and shortened the war by two years. To talk a little bit more about the service of the MIS, here's Sachi telling her grandfather's story after the war. My grandfather, as a translator, arrived in the Philippines for eight months in October of 1946 to June of 1947, and his role was as a translator and researcher for war crime tr- uh, trials. And so there were a big series of war tribunals in Europe and Asia after the war um, as just terrible, terrible atrocities were committed uh, during the war and even after. Um, and the story that really, really haunted him throughout his life was one about a Japanese army outfit that was still fighting in Mindanao, which is a southern island in the Philippines around in Indonesia, they were still fighting. They still thought the war was going on. And my grandfather had to help research um, all of these atrocities that was going on. And the really, really terrible part of the story is that a lot of the Japanese records of these war criminals were expunged by the USA in the name of wanting to rebuild Japan as quickly as possible through, uh, as part of the Marshall Act. And all of these Japanese um yeah, they, they were just released. They were let go. And that is something that I think those stories have been dis- have been buried a lot just in the name of trying to get over something that is already so terrible. But but yeah, so he, he worked on those cases and they didn't have the endings that everyone wanted. And I've heard of I've heard too that these these pockets of Japanese 
soldiers who thought that the war couldn't be over, even though so many people told them that they, the war was over. It wasn't an uncommon thing for many, many years, like 10, 20, 40 years down the line, people were still finding these pockets of Japanese soldiers who thought that they were still in the war. The 442nd Regimental Combat Team and the 100th Infantry Battalion was officially disbanded in Hawaii in 1946. Those Nisei who still wished to remain in the army were transferred to other units. In 1947, the U.S. Army reactivated the 442nd with the 100th Battalion as part of the U.S. Army Reserves with its home base in Hawaii. The 442nd sent several soldiers as replacements for personnel in the Korean War and the Vietnam War. However, the entire battalion did not see combat during the remainder of the 20th century. As of 2005, the new regiment was classified as the 100th Battalion, 442nd Infantry Regiment, and has only seen modern-day service in 2004 and 2009, when it was called for active duty in the Iraq War. Since 2010, the regiment has remained as a reserve group at its home base in Hawaii. While the 442nd and 100th Battalion are no longer purely Nisa units, the soldiers of the modern-day unit still carry on the legacy of their World War II heritage. The unit still retains all of the awards given to them during World War II, which include seven presidential unit citations, over 4,000 Purple Hearts, 29 Distinguished Service Crosses, 588 Silver Stars, over 5,000 Bronze Stars, and 21 Medals of Honor. All of these awards make the 442nd, to this day, the most highly decorated military unit of its size in all of United States military history. The new coat of arms for the unit no longer contains the red, white, and blue torch that symbolized the liberty and justice that the Nisei fought for in World War II. Their new unit patch is gray, blue, and white and shows a steamship with palm leaf in honor of its Hawaiian homeland. However, the unit still retains the official motto taken from the Nisei in World War II, Go for Broke. Before we close out this episode, we thought it'd be nice to uh, ask a few questions to our guests. So, our first question for our guests is, why do you think the Nisei veteran story is important to preserve? Well, I, I often battle with a question like that. You know, I know in my heart that it's incredibly important. Just as a factual piece in, in our nation's history, in recent times, you know, I... I'm just shocked at how we as a society have a pretty short memory span. And maybe it's because we didn't learn our history well enough or uh, it's not been taught to us in a way that we we can take it to heart. But it just shocks me that that you, you see history starting to repeat itself and not in a good way sometimes in, in a pretty bad way you know and so mm. if anything this there you know the the nisei story the the 100th infantry battalion the 442nd mis stories uh, are important in that generation that w- entire world war ii generation story is so important for future generations to really understand that you know these are things that that should not happen ever again you know in in, in our, and when we see it being done to maybe maybe other uh cultural groups or ethnic groups or that that you know there needs to be something said about that and you know a lot of these things are relative that they need to um come to light and we need to 
remind everyone what occurred. And uh, if we don't tell these stories, then you know usually um, people do forget. Yeah, I think from my perspective, it feels like very important history because not all of the members who lived through these very significant historical moments will be the first ones to tell you about those things, right? So whether it means that you have to be the one to ask those questions or if as those folk continue to pass away and that history and those stories die with them, then you just won't hear about them. People just won't know that. And so I think it feels so important to continue to talk about those stories, to talk about you know, what you guys are doing, right? Talking to family members of, of vets and get to kind of hear that history kind of be more, not solidified, but have its place in history, right? To be able to have that kind of to hold on to as we continue to get older and as we continue to age and learn more about our culture and history. That, yeah, that's how we, that's how we remember things, right? That's how we learn. That's how we learn about our past and hopefully determine what our future could look like. It just feels so significant, both for me personally as an individual and someone who that personally affects, but yeah, I think that history matters for for all kinds of people, right? To to be able to understand where we come from in order to to know where we're going. At my grandfather's service, there were a lot of really powerful, incredible stories shared about him. And at the end of the service, there was a woman who we had like an open floor to kind of anyone can speak. And there was a woman who didn't know my grandfather very well, but was a friend of my uncle. And she was in tears. And she said, in this current landscape, where there's so much like newly arising Asian hate and crimes against uh, Asian Americans, like she wished that there were more spaces to hear the stories of these people so dedicated to America and who like really were American heroes because that's like really what the world needs right now. And I totally agree with her that just everything about my grandfather, like just painted him as, as truly American and, and a really incredible human. And I think those stories aren't shared enough to a wide enough audience. So that's why, um, like on a very personal level, I'm so honored to be a part of this podcast and not just this episode, but like, part of this community as well because like the focus of this podcast is to share these stories and dig up stories that some of them are serious some of them are fun um but it all kind of brings humanity to i don't know to us and to to showing the world that that none of this is called for and and none of this should be happening Thank you to all of our guests for those amazing responses and for doing your part to help preserve the story of the Nisei vets today. Our next question is, if you could say anything right now to your grandfather or any of the Nisei vets, what would you say? Um, I, I'd probably just say, you see, because of, because of you and the actions that you witnessed and have accomplished in World War II. You know, your your family is able to live the way we live. You know, and that that's probably would be enough for him, you know, to to be satisfied with. Uh, the, 
they probably would never ask for anything at all, right? Mm-hmm. That my my grandfather was pretty simple and enjoyed um, enjoyed enjoyed simple things and that have a lot of meaning. Family was one of them, you know, and uh, to see that. Uh, his children and his children's children are doing okay um, in in Hawaii still, and um, you know that that probably be the he'd probably be satisfied just with that. So I'd probably tell him that that we're okay and we're doing okay, and Hawaii is what it is a lot due to his actions and the actions of the hundredth and the four forty second and and the Nisei of that era in Hawaii. Yeah. Well, this is a sweet question. Um, I mean, first thing I would say, like, I love him um, and I'm proud of him. I, yeah, I wish that I was able and or had the opportunity to ask him more questions about himself and his story. And that, yeah, he lived a, a great life. He lived, I'm sure, a tough life and experienced a lot of, really traumatic things between either, you know, going to camp, having to, and then, and then go to war and see things that I don't even want. Yeah. I could even, I can only imagine what that could look like and mm. having to come back and work so hard to raise a family. And I think to, yeah, hopefully see the legacy that he's built and has played a big part in and, and that he would get to see a glimpse of that and what he's been able to invest in and work so hard to build. So, um, yeah, but yeah, he's just very loved and, and very celebrated, and we just are so proud of him, too. So I think in the context of obviously talking about 442, I'm like, wow, that's that's there's a lot to unpack there, and I wish that we would have more conversations about it, but also have no regrets in terms of, you know, if he wanted to share that, that's great. If he didn't, that's also fine, too. Um, but, yeah. So what I would ask him is, among all the hardships that you went through and all the atrocities that you witnessed... How did you end up being such a chill dude? (laughs) He was just a super chill grandfather in the end of it. And I think like you would never know like all the, all the amazing stuff he did and all the Hmm. really serious stuff that happened to him. Had, had you just like met him on the streets in his seventies and eighties. We at the Yonsei podcast would like to thank you all so much for sharing everything you did today. And it means so much to us that you were willing to open up about your family's stories. Before we end, we have one more guest we want to talk to, who's helping preserve the legacy of the Nisei veterans. Here's Emiko Kranz, head of the Torchbearers. So, hi, my name is Emiko. I am currently a student in the UCLA Asian American Studies MA Community Health Sciences MPH program. I first got involved in Gopher Broke through the Kizuna Board Fellowship Program, where I was placed as a board fellow with Gopher Broke. Um, And through that, I got involved with the Torchbearers, which is their next generation initiative that brings in young adults to get involved with the organization. So I've been working with the Torchbearers for a couple of years now, and I've had the privilege of being offered a position on the Gopher Broke Board as a representative for the Torchbearers. So I am really humbled to be in this position with the organization. Really happy to be here with y'all today and talk with you. Yeah, congrats on the board position, by the way. 
Yeah, it's really coming from the work of a lot of people before me who were talking about how that representation would be really important, especially seeing that the organization is starting to think about how legacy is going to be immortalized going forward. As we think about legacy, uh, how did you find out about the history of, of Japanese American incarceration and of the 442? My own family history kind of misses that um, age range where people were um, enlisting with the army. So I don't have any family that was um, in the 442 or in the 100th or any of those World War II area, era battalions. But um, my grandpa did end up enlisting during the Korean War. So I don't have a very direct connection with um, the legacy of the 442, but I still ended up getting really involved in Go For Broke. I think for me, this concept of legacy has always been really valuable to me. Um, I think that a lot of the time I'll think about my family's own experiences with the incarceration. I think about how privileged I am to always have all of these things that I want to do, um, wanting to like split myself into three separate people so I can do all of these things. And my own family didn't have that privilege. And for all of those veterans of the 442 to have made the decision to fight for um, what they believed in, even knowing everything that they had gone through or that their family had gone through in the incarceration is something that really has always made me emotional. And so I think a lot about how difficult that decision had to be um, for everybody who chose to serve. And I think that this is something that is never like going to be irrelevant. I think that this is something that will always be important to the legacy of the Japanese American community and the Asian American community as a whole um, with all of the um, Asian hate that we're seeing nowadays, I think when people start calling for like, oh, we need to be more patriotic. Well, you look back at this legacy and you really question, is that the case? Is that what we really need? There's something else that's at the root of this because you see what all of these men in the 442 sacrificed and um, these sorts of things are still happening today. So while this legacy is something to be honored, it's also something that I think we can continually learn from. And that's what's really important to me in this story is that it's always going to be relevant. I think I already introduced what the Torchbearers was, um, but I'll just say it again just in case. So the Torchbearers is um, a group of young adults who are working with Go For Broke to help um, continue on the legacy of the 442, the 100th, um, in a variety of community events. So we kind of have this opportunity to do things in maybe a less traditional way. Um, Go for Broke has um, its mission that it's so tightly bound to, but we have a little bit more flexibility. So that's why we're able to do like these social events, like a Spamasubi eating contest and like, oh yeah, you can use like very loosely draw the connection between that to um the story of the veterans, there is something there. Like we swear there's something there, but um, we get to have like this fun that is backed up by the organization. We get so much support from Mitch, who's the president of the organization, as well as the board and all of the staff and everything. Um, 
but we get to come together and do not only social things, but also some volunteering things. Um, been doing a couple cleanups of the Evergreen Cemetery. There's all of these really great things that we get together and do to have fun and also give back. So um, we haven't been meeting as regularly recently just because COVID really threw us off. Um, we were so ready to like meet bi-monthly and like have all of these events and then everything really got um, thrown to the wayside. But we're starting to get things back up and running again. Um, a lot of people have been reaching out to get involved, which really motivated us to call another meeting. So really, um, if you contact the organization in any way, you'll probably be redirected to me. Um, but the usual way to get involved is just to get onto our email list and then I'll send out any meeting information from there and then also send out event information from there too. Um, so we're really looking forward to having more people on board, um, trying to get things going again and also get some new things started too, because we've only got a couple of things that the torchbearers have done, um, as kind of like annual or, um, biannual events. So we'd love to have some like fresh ideas and new people who are ready to also help us give back to the community, whether you are a descendant of the 442 or if you also just really see all of the value in this legacy and you want to help us with preserving it. I think that answered the question I was about to ask, but that's great. Um, no, no, it's uh, great. I think it's great when you can answer two questions with one answer. And that brings us to the end of today's special episode. Thank you to all of our wonderful guests for their time today and for helping to preserve the story of the Nisei veterans and share the stories of their own family's experience. Be sure to check out the rest of the Yonsei episodes and don't forget to follow at Nikkei Rising on Facebook and Instagram for release dates, episode titles, descriptions, and guests, as well as updates on other Nikkei Rising programs. To listen to all of Season 1 and the rest of Season 2, you can find the Yonsei podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and the Japanese American Memorial Pilgrimages website, jampilgrimages.com. The Yonsei Podcast is made by Hiro Odeza, Michelle Heckert, Yoko Fedorenko, Johnny Narita, and Matthew Wiseblay, and now sponsored by the Minidoka Pilgrimage Planning Committee. This has been the Yonsei Podcast, and in honor of all the Nisei veterans, remember, go for broke. Give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. Don't.